Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. So glad you could join us. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. This is certainly a unique period of time in the world of sports, but we hope to keep you entertained over the next 60 minutes. We got plenty of Giants news to tackle. Free agency well underway. The league year starts Wednesday, so nothing is official. That's important to note, but we're still going to go over all of the news related to the Giants as well as around the league. But, Paul, before we do that, this is a different setup that we're used to. First of all, I hope you and yours are safe and healthy during these very trying times. How's everything on your end? We're doing okay on this side. Lance, hope the same for you on your side. When John and I were talking yesterday about the only thing we could say positively was that the fans did not have to look at us anymore during the show. (laughs) Well, that's certainly a positive, and I guess maybe from your perspective, you don't have to be in the vicinity of me. From my perspective, I don't have to be in the vicinity of you. So maybe that's a good thing in the long run. But in all seriousness, let's get to the task at hand. And the Giants were quite active, Paul, on the first day of the period of time in which you could speak to players not associated with your team. Now, as you could see, Giants fans on Giants.com will go through all of the various reports, but once again, it's important to note nothing is official. But let's start, Paul, with the first bit of news and the Giants addressing the secondary. The Giants agreed to contract terms with free agent quarterback James Bradbury. This is according to NFL Network's Ian Rappaport. The move cannot be made official until free agency begins at 4 p.m. Eastern Wednesday. It is contingent upon Bradbury passing a physical. Bradbury, very familiar to Dave Gettleman because Gettleman drafted him in 2016. He was a second-round pick, so there's another player like a David Mayo, Paul, who he invested a pick in and watched groom in Carolina. And instantly, Paul, He is by far the most experienced member of the cornerback group, considering it's a youth movement all around him. That is true, Lance. He's going into his fifth NFL season out of Sanford. And at only 26 years old, I think he would be considered what's known as a young veteran or a guy who was just entering his prime. And I think that's important to note because... The Giants want to be careful here. As, as they proceed to uh, entice free agents to, to, to make deals, they want to be mindful that this is a team that is still building towards something. This is not a team that just needs one piece to go over the top where you might want to sign a guy who could be 30 or 31 because that's the missing link to a championship. The Giants still want to know that if they're going to sign a veteran free agent, the guy's got some of his best years ahead of him. He's not simply on the other side of the curve trying to collect a ring. Well, he's under 30, and he's still extremely motivated. He's coming off his rookie contract, and they need, with Janoris Jenkins out of the picture, you know, because a lot of people will point to, Paul, the fact, well, the Giants invested so many draft picks over the last few years in young corners. Is this necessarily a huge void that needs to be filled? But as the coaching staff, I'm sure, will attest to, When you have a veteran who has far more reps than everybody else combined last season, because even Sam Beal, even though he's been with the team for a few years, last year was his rookie year. Prior to that, it was a redshirt year. Now to be able to lean on somebody in that cornerback room, somebody that has been with various schemes, that has been exposed to -to man-to-man coverage, zone coverage, I think is now an extension of the coaching staff, which at least on paper on the roster is something that had been lacking. I can understand why you feel that way. You're looking at a guy who is 6'1 and, and over 210 pounds. 
Uh, I think the interesting part for me is I went into free agency. I looked at the Giants secondary and I said, well, it looks like they've got three young boundary corners in Beal, Ballantyne, and Baker. And I was thinking, well, maybe if the Giants want to enhance their nickel situation, Grant Haley, uh, you know, obviously looking for a bounce back year, but maybe they could provide some competition for him. Maybe get a veteran there who could battle him to try to improve the slot corner spot. Well, Bradbury is a boundary corner. Uh, I did some research on him, made some phone calls yesterday, Lance, and from people who have worked with him on a regular basis, I was told he is a terrific boundary corner, runs a 4-4-5 in the 40, loves press coverage. He will shadow the other team's best receiver, rarely plays in the slot unless that top receiver happens to line up in the slot. Bradbury was never afraid to go in there if he had to, but it is not his forte. He is going to be a boundary corner uh, where, wherever he, he goes on game day. Strong in run support, good tackler. Um, I'm told that they never gave thought to playing him at free safety, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you comment on that for a moment before I go back to that one. Let me just finish this this corner uh, scouting report. Soft-spoken guy. I'm told he's not very uh, outgoing or or very vocal or or the kind of guy who's going to be very very colorful, a la Janoris Jenkins. Much more uh, on the soft side. Only gave up one touchdown pass last year. And uh, obviously, when you look at some of the stats, I don't want to bore you with those, but the two premier receivers, and he faced a bunch of them last season, Evans caught 11 balls for 101 yards against him, which is not a very high average per catch. And Michael Thomas, 10 grabs for 87 yards, which shows you the kind of respect that he can command because neither one of those two premier receivers beat him deep. And, And that says a lot there. But I'm curious, Lance. I'm not sure exactly how this is going to line up for the Giants because, you know, let's say, let's say, and again, we're going off of the report uh, that that says he has agreed. Uh, would you line him up opposite Baker, and then what are you doing with Ballantyne, and what are you doing with Beal? Are one of those two guys maybe potential competitors at the free safety spot with Love? Is maybe Bradbury viewed as potentially a guy? who might be a free safety, I'm really not sure how this necessarily fits, given that right now the Giants' lead nickel would be Grant Haley, uh, assuming that this this uh, agreed-to deal were to go through. Well, I think it's a very fair question, Paul. I'm with you in terms of at least when you look at this unit on paper, Bradbury and Baker, the strengths of them being outside. Uh, Haley right now has the most experience out of the slot, to your point. But let me throw this back at you. You know, you threw out Julian Love, and Julian Love got some playing time very late in the season, showed some positive flashes. But remember, he also has experience as a nickel corner, going back to his days at Notre Dame. So who's to say that, Paul? Maybe they experiment. Remember, there's a new coaching staff, different mindset. Maybe love they view as an option on the inside at that cornerback spot and then delve into other options at the safety position next to Jabril Peppers. That's very possible, Lance. And that's why this Rubik's Cube is nowhere near complete as the Giants uh, look at at their secondary, I I do think that the previous coaching staff that had just handled things in 2019 
did see Love more as a free safety. I don't think they necessarily thought that his toolbox was was suited as well to be a slot guy as as it was making him a, a set of fielders, so to speak. But you certainly raise a possibility. And I think, you know, again, should this agreed to, reportedly agreed to deal go through, um, I, I'm curious to see what the uh, what the anticipated map is going to be in the defensive backfield. Well, they have a very young group of cornerbacks opposite Bradbury now, so there's going to be a lot of experimentation, which is what you're alluding to, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I want to go back to another point that you brought up, Paul, because I think there's a parallel, in my opinion, and I'm curious your thoughts, to how we view defensive ends in today's NFL. You need two edge rushers in today's NFL because you need to be able to bring pressure on both sides, especially with what you're looking at from the tackle position from an offensive standpoint. So I look at the cornerback position very similarly. When you have a number one corner, just like when you have a top defensive end, it gives you great flexibility in what you can do with the other options opposite the field. So what I think Bradbury's arrival does for Baker should not be overlooked, just like when we were talking about when JPP and Olivier Vernon were on the team, JPP would give opportunities to Vernon and vice versa. I look at the dynamics very similarly, and I don't think that should be overlooked in the sense that from a developmental standpoint, you now don't necessarily have to go into games, depending on what the coaching staff wants to do, and say that Baker has to be matched up with the number one wide receiver. Bradbury's more than confident based on some of the names you threw out, like Mike Evans and Michael Thomas within the NFC South, that Baker now can be exposed to not lesser talent, but maybe the second option, and that could be a means to build up his confidence and give him even more additional reps in year number two. Well, I think what you're alluding to, in a way, is what I like to call the Batman and Robin yeah. duo in the pass rush. And you're kind of just moving that into the secondary. And you're not necessarily saying one guy's Batman and one guy's Robin, but you're understanding that there needs to be a complementary synergy between the two corners playing on the boundary. That's exactly and, what I'm hitting on. And, and I, I, totally I think you articulated that. it very well. I totally understand that. And, you know, look, uh, I can only say this. The New England Patriots have done a masterful job of contending year after year after year in the National Football League. And in the last few years, they have not had that Batman type of pass rusher. I think we would both agree. Richard Seymour was probably the last one. I know they had Chandler Jones. I think Chandler Jones deserves some consideration. He was very efficient when he was with New England. Not there a long time, but there enough. Okay, so I'll give you him to some degree. But... It looks as though that Belichick has decided that he was more interested in building the back end of the defense first. Given the changes in the National Football League, it's become much more of a passing game. And teams are winging it around, even on first and second down. Belichick, it looks to me, and I haven't had a chance to sit down and hammer this out with him, but it looks as though he changed a lot of his core philosophy from the days when he was with the Giants And obviously under Bill Parcells, the Giants had a great front seven and a dominant pass rush. Well, in recent years, the Patriots have decided to have blanket coverage in their back seven and then said, okay, we'll make do and we'll scheme and we'll change it up and we'll confuse guys with the front line. And look, they're doing a lot of quick hitting stuff anyway, so why are we wasting time emphasizing the pass rush 
we're going to control the back seven so that those guys either don't know what's going on on offense on the other side of the ball or they've got to hold the ball longer because we're throwing stuff at them that they're not used to seeing with all that traffic back there. Well, if you believe that, and I think there's something to it, is it any wonder that Patrick Graham, the former assistant from the New England Patriots, who is now with the Giants in his second tenure, now their associate head coach and defensive coordinator, should it surprise us that maybe some of that theory is seeping down into East Rutherford? Well, I think that's a fair point. I mean, also remember, Joe Judge was there too. So you got yes. a lot of people, to your point, Paul, that were connected to the New England philosophy. But it's interesting, as you were discussing the breakdown of the New England defense, it also got me thinking of, well, what did the Patriots do not too long ago? They went out and they got a number one corner in Stephon Gilmore, who was within the division in Buffalo. So he became the main piece. You had Devin McCourty at safety, and then you built around those two, and that helped you get over the fact that you didn't necessarily have an elite pass rush. But here's the thing. In today's NFL, an elite pass rush can only cover up a middle-of-the-par secondary for so long and vice versa, Paul. So eventually, you need playmakers on all levels, but I think what we're seeing in the NFL, especially with what New England did when they beat the Rams two years ago, was the heart and soul of that defense, which is what you're hitting on, was the back end. They were very stingy. They were well-disciplined. They contested all those balls thrown deep down the field by Jared Goff. They were not giving up the big plays, even though there wasn't an immense amount of pressure on the quarterback. And when you go back to the Giants season, Paul, in 2019, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. The numbers show it. The Giants did not get an overwhelming amount of pressure. And when you have a young secondary, it shouldn't surprise anybody. You're going to give up big plays because it's baptism by fire. So I think the necessity of having an established corner from a leadership perspective and a tone-setting perspective absolutely fills a void based on what we saw with the Giants in 2019. Well, go back to two years ago. You mentioned how the Patriots did not get a tremendous amount of pass rush. They only had 30 sacks that year. They were yeah. tied for the, with the Giants for Indeed. second fewest sacks in the league. And they won the Super Bowl. Well, they went to the Super Bowl. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Is that, is that really something, you know, that, that we can hang our hats on and say, hey, that's the way to do it? They enhanced their pass rush this year some. Okay, let I mean, they got 47 sacks this year, so they certainly enhanced it some. But it was certainly a, a sack team by committee. They didn't necessarily have a Batman, so to speak. No one had double digits on the team. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I may be reaching at straws here, but I suspect because there are two very high-ranking Patriot, uh, former Patriots on the Giants coaching staff, I suspect there is something there. I, I don't know for a fact, but I'm thinking that it's possible. Well, it's a copycat league, so I don't think that's a stretch, but I just want to clarify something for our listeners, for those that may be connecting the dots too far, and I'll gladly speak for you. Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. We're in no way saying the Giants are going to be duplicating the success of the New England Patriots overnight. All we're pointing out is that the philosophy that Bill Belichick and his assistants followed is perhaps something that Joe Judge and Patrick Graham are looking to adopt in how they go about their business with their defensive scheme. 
And I think that is something that's fair at least to tie a knot around. I think there's certainly fairness there. And I think when you also consider the fact that there is a Darth of reasonably priced pass rushers available, either in free agency or, quite honestly, if you look at at the draft, we've been told there are not a lot of dominant pass rushers in this draft either. So maybe you look at the fact that the, the supermarket shelf doesn't have a lot on it, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but maybe you say, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't think about that. Maybe we should think about an alternate way to do it. And the alternate way to do it is something the Patriots have already figured out. Well, you could also look at it through the lens of after Jeff Okuda from Ohio State, if you go the corner route, perhaps the logic is maybe there's somewhat of a drop-off to the next guy. And when you already have a lot of youth in the cornerback position, does it make sense to bring in another young guy? Bradbury, at least, is somebody different. I also want to throw out another number just to hammer out what I was laying out in terms of experience, Paul. Bradbury has played nearly more than double the amount of defensive snaps in his first four years in the league, 3,798 to be exact, than every other Giants cornerback over the course of their careers. Now, the course of their careers is, of course, just 2019. (laughs) But if you combine, Paul, Baker, Ballantyne, Beal, and Love, they combined for 1,967 snaps last year. Bradbury has 3,798, which, like I said, is nearly double that total. Yeah, I look, there is certainly a mentor element to this deal as well, if, again, if the reported deal is agreed to and goes through, in that... You know, I remember when the Giants brought in Janoris Jenkins, when they brought in Antrell Roll, another guy. You know, when they brought in many years ago, they brought in Sam Madison and R.W. McQuarters into that defensive backs room. There is certainly an advantage to having a big brother in that room, even if uh, Bradbury is not necessarily noted as a vocal guy. uh, Still, to know that these youngsters could potentially have someone to go to, to lean on, to ask questions to, besides their own coaches, is certainly a positive. Well, and before we get to the next player, this is what I want to add to what you just said, why I think a guy like Bradbury may even have more value than what's on the surface. The NFL, the other day, Paul, made it very clear that right now the offseason schedule is in limbo. And what I mean by that is we may be looking at a similar 2011 offseason when the lockout occurred. And that meant that there were no OTAs. They didn't get back on the field until right into training camp and missed a little bit of training camp. Now, there's not a work stoppage this year, but because of the factors and the circumstances that we're dealing with as a society, we don't know, Paul, the state of OTAs. Coaches are going to have to get very creative in terms of how they interact with players. If you have a veteran voice that can at least talk to some of the other younger guys, either remote or in small gatherings, that all of a sudden becomes an extension of the coaching staff. Now, in fairness, Bradbury's got to learn a new scheme along the way himself, but I just don't think it hurts that you have somebody that's been through the league over the course of four years that the Ballantines, the Bakers, the Beals, and the Loves can at least lean on if they can't be in contact with the coaching staff as much as they would hope to. I do think that's a very good point, Lance. I believe it was just uh, the other day when, um, was it Adam Schefter who uh, publicly released a memo that the league had passed around to its teams saying basically your off-season programs are on hold indefinitely 
And so we really don't know when these guys are going to have an opportunity to crack the books. Staying on the defensive side of the ball, the Giants have agreed to contract terms with free agent linebacker Blake Martinez. This is according to NFL Network's Mike Garofolo. The agreement is contingent on Martinez passing his physical, and it cannot be made official until free agency begins at 4 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Martinez also came into the league in 2016, like James Bradbury. He was drafted by the Green Bay Packers. So here's another connection to the front office slash coaching staff. In 2018, Paul, Patrick Graham was the linebackers coach in Green Bay for a year. Well, he coached Blake Martinez, just like Gettleman drafted Bradbury. And Martinez is known for his tackling. He led the Packers in each of the last three seasons in tackling from 17 to 19. He's also been up there in terms of the league leaders. In 2017, he was the co-leader in the NFL. I believe he was second in the NFL last season. So this is a guy that on the surface you envision as being somebody in the middle of the defense. And if Patrick Graham is going to shift back and forth between a 3-4 and a 4-3, if they need two middle linebackers, he did. David Mayo, Ryan Connolly coming off a torn ACL are options. And if they go to a 4-3, he could very well be the lone man in the middle. Well, Martinez, when he was with the Packers, uh, was one of those three-down backers who stayed on the field at all times, even in the sub-packages. Uh, he was a guy who called a lot of the defensive signals with, with the helmet. Uh, they often would only go with two linebackers because of that sub-package. But, but he was an Aaron Rodgers favorite. I did a bunch of research on him in the last 24 hours as well. And it turns out he, he was a guy who Rodgers used to really love because Martinez would come to him with questions as the quarterback of the defense and try to glean as much knowledge as he could bookwork-wise from the quarterback of the offense. So that's certainly something to be admired. Now, he had his two best seasons in 17 and 18, if you strictly look at his production, uh, two, uh, three years ago, you had Dom Capers as the defensive coordinator, and we all know how well-respected he has been over the course of time. And then linebacker coach Patrick Graham came in there in 18 after he left the Giants. Now, in those two seasons, which are regarded by people in Green Bay as Martinez's best seasons, he was much more of a blitzer. They sent him a number of times. He was going forward, kind of like what the Giants used to do with Kavika Mitchell during the 2007 season. He did not do as many coverage responsibilities. Last year, um, Kirk Olivadotti was his linebacker's coach after Graham had gone to become D.C. of the Miami Dolphins. Olivadotti was quoted as saying he is a football junkie. And based on the comments that I read from both Oliver Dottie and Graham during their time in Green Bay, to paraphrase, they love these things about Martinez. His smarts, his effort, and the fact that he is extremely coachable and consistent. Now, from talking to people who saw him on a regular basis, they tell me he may not make the splash plays. You're not going to necessarily see the highlights all the time on ESPN. But this is a guy who understands what he's doing. He's going to line people up correctly, and he's really going to be the brains of the defense. And I think it's interesting because the Packers allowed him to walk into free agency when they signed Christian Kirksey yeah. from Cleveland. Well, 
Mike Petting from the Browns' former coach, who is now uh, the coordinator with the Packers, has a connection to Kirksey. So it seems to me, and I, I don't know, everybody can find holes in everybody's game, and I know that, that Martinez is not necessarily known for his horizontal speed or hitting the hole extremely fast. Uh, I know that, that his coverage skills downfield have been questioned, but you have a guy who coached Kirksey in Cleveland and probably was very eager to bring his former player to Green Bay. So as much of a personal preference uh, may have had to do with this move to allow Martinez to walk as anything else. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. Well, it's who you know in the National Football League, which is very much related to all walks of life, Paul. I don't think that's a crazy statement at all. I always say when it comes to even coaches rounding out their staffs, just like we had discussions about Joe Judge, not to get completely off subject, it's no coincidence that a lot of the people he brought in, he had previous ties to. He had previous relationships because you bring in people that you trust. So is it a stunner that Patrick Graham has a relationship with Blake Martinez and when the Giants parted ways with Alec Ogletree, that I'm sure Patrick Graham, when he was looking at the free agent list, said, hey, you know, let's at least take into consideration Martinez. This is what I saw out of him. This is how we utilized him. This is how I think he'd be a good fit for our defense. Same thing with Bradbury and the logic there in Gettleman drafting him, monitoring his play in Carolina, and then even though Gettleman left, also saying, hey, if Bradbury ever becomes a free agent, maybe a player we want to entertain bringing in. So I think all of those connections are important to bring to the forefront no matter what team you're talking about, whether it be the Browns, Giants, Packers, you name it. To a lesser degree, Lance, and I'm not suggesting that this would have carried weight in any reported uh, agreed-to deal, but when Blake Martinez was coming out of Stanford, uh, he played at the Senior Bowl under one head coach named Jason Garrett, who at that time was with the Dallas Cowboys and now with the Giants. There's another connection. It's a small world, and everybody is not too far away from one another, as we just laid out. Now, you brought up Stanford. He comes from a very strong program, and now the Giants have a number of Stanford alum in the mix because that brings us to the other addition that the Giants have reportedly agreed to contract terms with, and that is the Giants have agreed to contract terms with free agent tight end Levine Toilolo. According to ESPN's Adam Schefter, the agreement is contingent on Toilolo passing his physical, and it cannot be made official until free agency begins at 4 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Also, Caden Smith, by the way, for those of you keeping track at home, is another product of Stanford, another tight end on the (laughs) roster who had some positive flashes after the Giants claimed him off of waivers in mid-September. Toy Lolo, this guy is, I'm sure, somebody, Paul, that is right up your alley because this is a trench guy. Even though he's tight end, okay, he is known for his blocking. He doesn't have an immense amount of receptions over the course of his career. He's 6'8". So the size is there, and I want to tell you a quick side story before you go into detail. And this is the one thing that's always jumped out to me about Toy Lolo. 2014 is with the Falcons. It's week four. They're in Minnesota. The Falcons are decimated by injuries on the offensive line. Mm-hmm. They're in such a precarious spot. 
that the Falcons had to move Toy Lolo over to right tackle to get through the game because they lost their right tackle. They lost some interior guys. They had no more offensive linemen left, Paul. So they move him to right tackle to try to finish the game. And then coincidentally, the Falcons played the Giants the next week. So this is why I remember that story because when we were scouting Atlanta, this was a prevalent part of that narrative. So Toy Lolo, not to say that the Giants are going to use him on the offensive line, but if he can move over to right tackle and hold his own, even if it's a few snaps in a game, that just goes to show you his bread and butter is as a blocker. Well, uh, to to put him into perspective for, for Giants fans, he has a very similar frame to Howard Cross. We're talking about a guy who's about 270 pounds, although that was some years ago for Howard. I think he's eaten a few more <laughs> dinners since then. But we're talking about a guy who plays at 6'8", 270, and Howard played at 6'6". Uh, you know, a little bit shorter, but basically the same type of frame. So he is a, a monster of, of, a, of a player uh, as an inline tight end. I think I need to, uh, in full disclosure, uh, also tell you there is a connection here too because when he was with the Falcons, uh, Giants secondary coach Jerome Henderson was there as yeah. well. Uh, spent two years uh, with the Falcons while Henderson was in Atlanta. So... Of the three names that you have mentioned during the course of this program, all three have connections in one way, shape, or form to the Giants coaching staff or their front office. It's a small world once again, and we're just here to now bring everything together and connect all the dots. 97 receptions over the course of his career. He was with the Falcons from 2013 to 17, briefly with the Lions for a season, and he was with the Niners who made it all the way to the Super Bowl last year. I mentioned had a brief period of time in which he crossed paths with Caden Smith. So now let's look forward here. What this means, Paul, for the tight end position, because I think that's a big part of the conversation. Evan Engram returning from injury. Caden Smith, I thought, was extremely promising and flashed in the latter stages of last season. C.J. Conrad, who was on the practice squad during a period of time last year, he still very much is in the mix. But Rhett Ellison retires, and he was known as the main blocking tight end. Caden Smith, I think, is more than capable of being a two-way tight end, which he proved. But, you know, this could be a guy that could very well open things up for Evan Engram and Caden Smith, depending on how often they use two double tight end formations. I'm interested to see how many roster spots the Giants will allocate to the tight end position because I'm also of the opinion that uh, C.J. Conrad, who uh, is back now on the reserve contract that he signed at the end of this past season. Remember the rookie out of Kentucky last year uh, who had gotten cut right before the year started. The Giants are bringing him back to give him another chance to earn a spot. And I thought he had a terrific preseason. And really, uh, in my opinion, think he's going to give people a lot of competition for a roster spot. Now, if Ingram comes back from his foot surgery and is healthy enough to go, well, now, you know, he's the number one guy. You know, Caden Smith will be the number two guy. The question becomes then, who fights it out to be the number three tight end? And, of course, if Ingram does have injury issues, and we know that has reared its head in the past with him, well, all of a sudden, number two elevates to number one, and your number three tight end becomes your number two tight end. Well, do you keep four tight ends because of Ingram's injury history? knowing that that number four tight end may wind up being elevated into the number three spot. So 
uh, a, a signing uh, or an, ag- an agreement, potential agreement with a Toy- Toyolo. I'm going to have a lot of time with that name. <laughs> and his whole family, by the way, you should also mention after I get done about his family background because they're just loaded with footballs in their, in their living room. Um, between him, between Conrad, between Dickerson, you know, all of a sudden now, you're looking at, and, and who knows what's going to happen with Scott Simonson. Maybe, maybe he comes back and tries out again during the summer. That's another name. So the Giants may have an ability to really sort through these guys. And at the very least, I would think Ingram is probably, given his foot surgery, going to be very limited during the offseason and maybe through training camp. I don't know how much they're going to push him, given that that foot injury was very serious which means all the other tight ends who come to camp, whatever look they get at training camp is going to be a healthy look. It's going to give them a lot of extra reps to try to prove that they deserve to make the team. Competition is always a good thing. It's something that Joe Judge even preached going back to his introductory presser that everybody's going to have to earn a spot and nothing's going to be handed out. So that falls right into those principles. But here's another thing that I want to bring up within the tight end conversation. Let's go back to what you and I were discussing earlier, Paul, when we were building a parallel to the New England school of thought with respect to the secondary, right? And how they built up the secondary with good cover guys to maybe help the pass rush that didn't necessarily have Batman. Okay, so Patrick Graham and Joe Judge are coming from the Bill Belichick School of Thought, which also invested heavily in multiple tight ends, right? You know, Rob Gronkowski was the main guy, but let's not overlook the fact that they had a number of other complementary players, maybe even more so this past season, Paul, when they didn't have Gronk, and they utilized guys like Matt Lacoste, the former Giants tight end, Mm -hmm. whether it be... What about Ben Watson? Ben Watson, there's another guy, correct, who has been around the league and coincidentally just retired again. So the point is, this is a dynasty that was built around putting value in having multiple tight ends and guys who could do a little bit of everything, or one guy's a blocker, another guy's a receiver. If you go based on that mindset, then to go back to your question, it would not surprise me if they value having at least four tight ends on this roster. Well, you know, the new CBA is going to give them two extra roster spots. Yeah, from 53 to 55. So why not maybe consider that extra roster spot coming at that position when it looks as though you may have an injury question with your lead guy? Well, and here's the other thing. If Evan Ingram, to your point, we don't know the timetable. Things are encouraging, but you never know with anything. And I would agree with you. There's no reason to rush him along. And who knows what's going to happen with respect to the status of the offseason and the workouts. But this is why, to me, I know you're high on C.J. Conrad. And I know this goes back to last season. I'm very high on Caden Smith. I really like Paul so what I, I saw. So am I. Please don't. don't okay. No, I, once again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I just know that Conrad, you had a connection there last year. You saw some positive flashes in camp. I would lean towards Caden Smith. Not that I'm down on Conrad, but the reason I'm bringing it up, Caden Smith had games last year, Paul. He was the leading receiver for the Giants. You get the tight end. So the point is, if Engram is not 100% ready to go... Smith should be number one. Correct. I think if you've got Levine Toilolo right now in-house as your main blocker, and you could now say Caden Smith could be our receiving tight end with Toy Lolo, and then we can mix in Evan Engram. We don't necessarily have to say, oh, my God, if we don't have Engram and Toy Lolo on the field, we're in trouble because we don't necessarily have another receiving threat at that position. 
Understood. And the truth of the matter is you want every one of those guys to be able to do something on the other side of their expertise so that you're not totally giving away what they're going to do when they're on the field. And that's an extremely important point because then all of a sudden when you put one tight end on the field, for example, using your logic, you put Toy Lolo on the field, most defense is going to say to themselves, okay, we know he's not a huge receiving threat. He could catch the ball, but he's probably not the go-to guy, so he's probably in as an additional blocker slash offensive lineman. Whereas if you put in a guy like Caden Smith and Toy Lolo, now all of a sudden you got to think about both of them could block, Paul, to your point, but also Smith is a threat to move down the field or the middle of the field and be that security blanket for Daniel Jones. You know, I I think the Giants were very fortunate during the last few years of Howard Cross's career. And Bill Parcells, you know, uh, always loved Howard Cross because Howard was that physical, nasty, in-line blocking tight end that, uh, you know, he liked as a blue-collar coach. But after Parcells left, during Howard's final years, you know, Remember the 2000 Giants, they had Pete Mitchell was basically the receiving tight end. Howard Cross was the blocking tight end. And if memory serves, I don't think Howard Cross caught more than a half a dozen passes during that, that NFC championship season that the Giants put forth when then they wound up losing to Baltimore in the Super Bowl. It was all Pete Mitchell. You know, Pete Mitchell would start. He'd catch all the passes. He'd get the first downs. Uh, Occasionally, if they'd line up with a double, you know, Howard would be in there. But he was the blocker. And, you know, you hate to do that because you're giving away what you're going to do. But there are times when you just want to look at the defense and say, guess what? We're going to mash it down your throats. And it doesn't matter if we have that 270-pound tight end on the right side of the line. That's where we're running it. Try to stop it. If, if the guy could be that good at that particular part of his game, sometimes it doesn't matter if the other team knows what's coming. Yeah, it's just like when a team runs the football down your throat, you know it's coming, like what the Niners did, Paul, which I think relates to this conversation in the postseason. They had drives against the Vikings and the Packers where it was six straight plays, they only ran. It was eight straight mm-hmm. plays, they only ran. And the defense is new, but San Francisco said, if you can't stop us, we're still going to continue to do it. So it certainly can work that way in instances if you are so adept at your particular skill. And I certainly think at at 6'8", 270 pounds, uh, we know that he can hit if asked to. (laughs) And for those of you counting at home, by the way, it seems as if we've met our Howard Cross mentioned quota for the program. I I guess, Paul, he may be getting some kickback. I don't remember Howard Cross's name coming up so often on a Big Blue Kickoff Live, but I'm glad we met those standards today. Well, the the positional conversation lent it to some fond memories. Let's put it that way. It did indeed. This is Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the Giants mobile app. So glad you could spend part of your day tuning in. As you could tell, we are not in the Giants facility in the studio because of the unfortunate circumstances and trying times, but we're still going to be providing shows and keeping you up to date on the latest Giants news as well as the latest news around the league. And it's also, by the way, before we move to other news, important to note, as we mentioned, all of these contract agreements are according to multiple reports for Bradbury, Martinez, and Toilolo, and all of the agreements are contingent on all three of these players passing physicals. None of these deals can be made official until free agency begins at 4 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Okay, so Paul, that's the layout of the land for what the Giants have done in recent days. Now let's shift course to the NFC East because that obviously is something the Giants are monitoring as well and there's been a lot of activity within the division. I want to start with the Cowboys. 
No surprise, they gave the franchise tag to Dak Prescott. It's the exclusive tag, which means he can't negotiate with anybody else. So they have until July 15th to hammer out a new deal. And they've got a new coach, a new scheme, even though Kellen Moore is still the OC. So, you know, the urgency is there. The last thing you want to see is your quarterback holding out. But maybe more important than what they did with Dak Prescott was the fact that the Cowboys hammered out a new deal with Amari Cooper, who they gave up a first-round pick in 2019 to the Raiders to acquire his rights. He only had a year and a half left on his contract, and they gave him a massive deal to keep him in-house. And I think that may have been more important than getting something done with Dak right now because they were able to tag him because Amari meant so much to Dak and Michael Gallup, their other young receiver, that if you don't have Amari there and you don't have receiver number one or 1A, that could very well completely change the dynamics of your offense. I agree with you, Lance. I think it's a very big deal. Ian Rappaport, again, reporting that Cooper and and the Cowboys agreed to a new five-year deal. And, you know, they obviously uh, are losing Byron Jones through free agency. So that is a big fish on the defensive side of the ball. But offensively, uh, you have to think that the Cowboys are just peachy pleased right now that they are able to keep their key weapons. I mean, their 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 trio, their triumvirate of Cooper and Zeke and Prescott uh, moving forward. Unless, of course, Prescott decides that he's not going to sign the exclusive franchise tag and becomes a holdout, and then that causes uh, another whole dilemma that we can't even begin to discuss right now. Territory you never want to get into, whether you're a team that has an established scheme in place or a new scheme that needs to be implemented like the Cowboys. But once again, as we talked about with the Giants scenario and the value of having a veteran like Bradbury within the cornerback group, who knows how this offseason is going to play out with them getting on the field. So even if somebody did threaten a holdout at some point in this offseason, I don't know how much of a statement it would make if nobody's at the facility to begin with. But once again, we may be getting ahead of ourselves Mm -hmm. on that front. Let's move over to the Philadelphia Eagles, Paul. Philadelphia, and I've brought this up time and time again on Big Blue Kickoff Live, the one thing that they've been synonymous with since Jim Schwartz was brought in as their defensive coordinator is they invest in the trenches, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. Every year, it seems, they do a great job of retooling by bringing in another defensive lineman either to replace somebody they lose or say hey by the time the fourth quarter rolls around we're going to know we don't have to rely on one guy to play 90 percent of the snap so not to frighten Giants fans but let's be realistic Paul they now have on the interior of their defensive line I haven't even mentioned the edge guys on the interior they've got Fletcher Cox They have Malik Jackson, who missed all but one game last season because of a foot injury, so he's returning from injury, and they now just came to an agreement, according to multiple reports, with Javon Hargrave of the Pittsburgh Steelers. That means those three guys you're going to have to deal with if you're the Giants, the Cowboys, and the Redskins on the interior of your offensive line. Hargrave is just a good player, Lance. There's no other way to describe it. Very strong, powerful, stout causes a lot of trouble in the interior line even gets occasional sacks I mean he's not just a run stopper yeah uh you know he's a fire hydrant you know he's 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 got that very square boxcar stout kind of look that you want for a typical defensive tackle and uh he fits exactly what the Eagles want to do extremely well I agree with you 
Now, as far as Philadelphia's back end, you brought up Byron Jones, who was with the Cowboys, the corner slash safety, who ultimately agreed to a deal with the Dolphins. He's now reset the cornerback market, which, by the way, is another example of how it's all about timing, Paul, in free agency. I think sometimes fans, media members, we get too caught up in, well, this guy's not worth that type of money, or, or that guy, why would you invest that type of money in that position? But it's all about when you become a free agent, you have the opportunity to test the market, your agent is going to see, well, what was the previous guy that set the bar? Fine. That's our starting point. Sure. Sure. And, and you know, look, I get it. That's the way it works in capitalism. You know, law of supply and demand. Yeah. And, and the next guy's going to say, well, I'm comparing myself to him, and that's what he got, so that's where we're going. I mean, I get it. It doesn't mean you have to give it to them. Of course. And chances are somebody else will. <laughs> 100%. So that's why you either bite the bullet and lay out that contract to your point, or you then watch the player go elsewhere. And the reason I bring that up, because a lot of people now are saying to themselves to stay within the division once again, well, look at the amount of money that the Cowboys have put into Cooper, Zeke, and Dak. Three important positions, don't get me wrong, but a lot of money in a salary cap error when we haven't even talked about any defensive players, unless, of course, you could probably throw in Demarcus Lawrence in that conversation because he was recently given a hefty contract. So let's say four guys eating up a lot of your cap space. This is why, Paul, it is so important to hit home runs in the draft because when you know you can't pay everybody in this day and age and you ultimately have to make sacrifices, the Giants have seen it, everybody in the division has seen it, everybody across the NFL landscape has seen it. The way you make up for investing a lot of money and resources in maybe a few positions is you have to find the gems in the draft. And I'm not just talking about the first round, Paul. I'm talking about the mid-rounds too are just as important because then you have the luxury of having the bulk of your roster on rookie contracts and also getting good value out of that. Well, I think that's the first step and the biggest step in terms of kind of acquiring the guys that you'd like to acquire to win. I think the second part to that is once you start to win, if you can put together two, three, four winning seasons in a row and be legitimate contenders, now you get those free agents who may be willing to take less to come to you because they think that you have a winning culture and a winning atmosphere and you're going to give them a chance to maybe grab the ring. So I think it's important not only to draft well, but once you get into that third and fourth and fifth year of your of your overturn or of your restructure, you have to understand that you want to be attractive enough so that people want to come to your team. That's what Belichick has done for literally decades now. He has made sure that, hey, there are going to be reasonably priced and second-level tier free agents who are going to want to come to his team and pass up higher money because they know with confidence that his team is going to give them a chance to win. That that team is going to be competitive and that team is going to be in the playoff hunt every single year. But the way New England also has built up that culture is a combination of coaching, taking chances in the draft, having those things pay out, and then, of course, having the luxury of one of the greatest quarterbacks of yes. all time, who yes. we will certainly get into in a moment because there's news on that front. But I just want to wrap up the movement in the NFC East, Paul, before we move on to another topic. 
the reason I brought up Byron Jones is is because his name was tied to perhaps the Eagles, considering they have a lot of free agents on the back end in the secondary. They've been plagued by injuries at that position. That's something to monitor. The direction Philly goes in the secondary, and speaking of the secondary, the Redskins made a minor move. Kendall Fuller, they signed from the Kansas City Chiefs, who I think did a really nice job, specifically in the Super Bowl, to help KC win, made some big plays down the stretch. But Fuller was actually drafted by the Redskins. Mm -hmm. He was traded to the Chiefs a few years ago as part of the Alex Smith deal. And now Fuller comes back full circle. I know Alex Smith is on the roster. Unfortunately, that significant injury he's still trying to return from. But Washington and Philly still have a lot of question marks in the secondary. So when you look at this division, you can really say that's going to be a position to monitor, not just for one team. I would say all four teams across the board. Yes, I, I absolutely understand your, your thoughts there. I do think that maybe, just maybe, the Giants would have the most potential answers to those questions. But the other three teams in the division right now, in my mind, they've got a, a lot of gaping holes that are going to need to be plugged. And I think they'll probably looking at the fact that this draft is supposed to be very deep in corners, specifically boundary corners in the first three rounds. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live as we are recapping the latest with respect to the Giants in free agency. In case you are just tuning in or scrolling along on the program, nothing is official, but the Giants have agreed to contract terms with free agent cornerback James Bradbury as well as linebacker Blake Martinez and tight end Levine Toilolo. That is all according to... Ian Rappaport, Mike Garofolo, and Adam Schefter, respectively. Nothing is official. Nothing can become official until Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. And all of these contract agreements are contingent on all three of these players passing physicals. You can get to Giants.com for all the latest on those transactions. Let's not bury the lead here, Paul. That brings us to the meat and potatoes of the NFL news. And while I think there was a lot of speculation... I still think it's surprising to hear the fact that Tom Brady went on Instagram earlier today and officially announced that he is going to move on and will not be returning to the New England Patriots for a 21st season, that he is now going to test free agency. We can maybe get into where he'll wind up, but I think let's put this in perspective, first of all, and this to me connects to, first of all, Eli Manning. Never take for granted a veteran quarterback on your team. That's number one. And also, never take for granted that you're going to have the luxury to have a quarterback suit up for your team and, oh, by the way, stay durable and healthy for over 15 years. The Giants saw it firsthand with Eli Manning, but, Paul, Tom Brady, when it's all said and done here, regardless of what happens moving forward, 20 seasons with New England multiple Super Bowl rings, multiple postseason appearances, and here to me is even more incredible. He only missed 15 games since he took over as the starter, and that all came in one season in 2008 when he tore his ACL. So that means that for the last 20 years, New England knew when we kick off on Sundays, Mondays, Thursdays, you name it, Tom Brady's going to be under center, and that's one less thing that we have to worry about. Yeah, look, he's the GOAT, okay? I get it. He's the GOAT. And I tip my cap to him for every single thing that he has accomplished, including playing at a high level past 40. You know, he's become basically the George Foreman of NFL quarterbacks. Remember when Foreman <laughs> came back and won the heavyweight championship? Uh, I, I totally understand that. 
But I will tell you, Lance, and I put this up on my, my Twitter earlier, uh, you know, whenever you see a legendary superstar wind up changing helmets or changing uniforms or changing jerseys, use whatever term you'd like, it just shows you how much shine and how much luster has to go to those superstars who were able to play with one team their entire career. And I tie that back to Eli Manning. Once a giant, always a giant, only a giant. And that's a beautiful thing. Same thing with Phil Simms, Harry Carson, Michael Strahan. Uh, it's, it's a special deal. George Martin. I've always felt that, especially in these modern times of professional sports, for the legends, the true greats of your franchise and of your organization, to be able to allow them to be lifelong members of your team and never have to go into another team's home locker room. Boy. That's special, and it continues to be more special with each passing year. And for Tom Brady now to say he's done with the Patriots and is prepared to put on another team's helmet, man, that's that that's a big deal. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I do think that the legacy of those who only wear one uniform have a little more luster on them. That's just me. No, and you're entitled to your opinion. I don't think Brady going anywhere else is going to ultimately tarnish the legacy. I don't think it's going to take anything away from him because, let's face it, Paul, at this point, he's got nothing to prove. But no, You're right. You're right. It doesn't take anything away from him, but those who are able to accomplish that little extra, it gives them that extra shine. That's all I would say. Well, it's 100% special, and I think that's what you're heading home at. I think if you can walk away in your career and say, hey, I was in one building. I was synonymous with one team. That's it. That's the only thing that you could talk about when you speak of the resume of a specific player. I'm sure that's special for anyone that has had that luxury, like to your point, a Michael Strahan and an Eli Manning. But I also at the same time, Paul, do respect individuals who love the game so much, who are passionate about the game so much that maybe they're not thinking about the short-term or long-term right now when it comes to legacy. And Brady's the ultimate competitor. Not to say Eli Manning wasn't. Don't misinterpret my words or any of the other players that have been synonymous with one team. But I think this is also a reflection of maybe Brady deep down inside. The competitor in him wants to see what he can do without maybe Bill Belichick in the shadows without the New England dynasty in the shadows. I don't know if that's of utmost importance, Paul, but I do think the competitor in him may be steering him in this direction a little bit. And, look, he's certainly entitled to feel that way. I, I won't deny him that right. But in my opinion, if I were a player, there would be something that I would value about my legacy and my selflessness about that as opposed to my ego or my curiosity that would like to prove something else by going to another uniform. That's just me. Now, as far as looking ahead, a few teams certainly could utilize the quarterback, have the cap space to do it. Tampa Bay is a team that has been floated out there. Bruce Arians has had a lot of experience working with various quarterbacks, specifically veterans. Carson Palmer is one guy that certainly comes to mind when they were in Arizona. If you go to Tampa Bay, you'd have Mike Evans, you'd have Chris Godwin, you'd have a plethora of tight ends. I think the offensive line is something, if you're Brady, you have to take into consideration. And then there's the Chargers, Paul, a team that just parted ways with Phillip Rivers. 
They certainly have a void, even though I like Tyrod Taylor, and I think I did do far worse than Tyrod Taylor when you look at the NFL landscape, and he has had ties to Anthony Lynn, their head coach, going back to when they were both in Buffalo, but you know, both of those teams make sense. You've got talent at the skills positions around the quarterback. My only concern with both of those teams is Brady knows what it's like when you don't have great protection. And neither of those teams, I would say the offensive line is their strong suit, and he clearly is not the most mobile quarterback out there. That's also something, if I'm Brady, I think you have to take into consideration. Well, there are a lot of things, including not only the offensive line, but also how close do you think they are to winning, especially if he's only going to play maybe two years, maybe three at the outset. He's going to want a team that he believes really has a chance to get another one of those rings. Otherwise, why would you leave in the first place? But I think you bring up an interesting point as we tie this back to the Giants in that the Brady-led quarterback carousel is going to have probably a dramatic impact on the top five picks in this year's draft and the Giants are at number four and right behind them you've got Miami at five the Chargers at six and Carolina at seven now Tampa Bay's all the way down at 14. I don't know if they're thinking of trying to move up into the top five you know and I don't know if the Giants would be willing to move down to 14 to make a deal with them so that they could get a quarterback if they miss out on Brady but what I do know is this to move down to five six or seven because Carolina, apparently, according to the reports that the networks have put out there this morning, uh, they apparently are willing to part ways with Cam Newton. So you may have three teams right behind the Giants, depending upon if Brady goes to the Chargers. You may have three teams right behind the Giants who are very eager to land a particular quarterback in the draft and will want to move up and could be a potential trading partner. Well, this is why it's a domino effect. And no matter if these transactions are connected to the Giants, it perhaps could increase the trade market for the number one, number four overall pick. There's no doubt about that. So I think that's a fair tie-in. Here's another one I want to throw at you. And by the way, before I throw this out, the Carolina Panthers now have since Paul come out with a statement saying that they've given Cam and his representatives permission to seek a trade. And there's some rumors swirling out there. This is from Diane Russini of ESPN saying that the Panthers could be interested in Teddy Bridgewater, who is a free agent now that the Saints are going to move on from him because they've locked up Drew Brees and they have given Taysom Hill a restricted tender to make sure that he is not let go. But let me throw in another scenario that could impact the draft or trade partners. New England now has a void, right? Okay, Tom Brady's moving on. You got Jarrett Stidham, who was a mid-round pick last year, barely any sample size, and I find it hard to believe that New England's going to put all their marbles behind him. They could very well trade for somebody like Andy Dalton from Cincy. New England's not known for making big splashes in the draft, but just want to throw out a thought, Paul, and I'm curious your perspective. Nick Saban's at Alabama. Tua played for Nick Saban. Saban knows Belichick very closely. Could New England now look to go for that home run, move up, and try to go after Tua as their future quarterback? Oh, I don't think that's out of the question when you try to connect the dots, but New England is at 23. Well, of course. I mean, realistically, it's tough, but maybe this is the year that they really are willing to part ways with draft picks. Well, it would not only be this year's draft. Of course. I think you'll be talking about probably a couple of number ones over the next two years after this, don't you think? Absolutely. It's going to take a massive move. That's why I said a big splash. Especially and they're not known for doing that. Giants at four, it's going to take a boatload. 
<laughs> well, and I'm not even talking about the Giants. I'm talking about maybe somebody even in the vicinity, let's say, too. I, I, you know, I think the problem is at 23, it's not a very attractive spot to move down to. And unless you overpay, which I think is what they're going to have to do to get into the two of vicinity, um, I don't think a deal would, would likely happen. Well, that's why the game of speculation ensues. It doesn't mean that these things are going to come to fruition, but it's fascinating as we're going over the quarterback landscape how this conversation is so fluid. It changes from day to day. You know, it went from Brady looking like the market is going to squeeze and not many people are going to leave town, and maybe he would think twice. Now all of a sudden he's out there. Cam can become available, which means the Panthers now could have a reason to draft a quarterback, even though, remember, they drafted Will Greer last year and they did re-sign Kyle Allen who took over for Cam initially and was undefeated as a starter. I think he won his first five starts before all of a sudden reality started to set in. So it's not as if Carolina doesn't have options internally, but when you have a new coach like Matt Rule, just like the Giants do, all bets are off, Paul, because who's to say the coaching staff thinks as high of those players as the previous regime did? Well, let me play off of your phrase a moment ago. You just said all bets are off. Belichick has been known to be a wild trader. What if he went hog wild crazy and tried to move up twice? Moved up into the top 10 or 12, you know, by making a, a boatload of a pick offer to somebody. And then at that point, then called maybe the Giants at number four and said, okay, I can get up into the possible 12 or 10. Might that be the vicinity you'd be willing to deal with me on? Now, of course, at that point, he may not have much ammunition to make that second move, but don't ever put anything beyond Bill Belichick. That guy has always got his wheels turning. I agree with you, and here's the other thing that I also think we shouldn't lose sight of. While I'm sure it's a stunning move for many, and deservedly so, because it's hard to envision Tom Brady suiting up elsewhere, let's not be naive, Paul. There have been conversations over the last few weeks, and I don't think this was a bomb that was dropped on the New England Patriots. I think that they anticipated this was going to happen, and that's why I would not be surprised if Belichick and company have been having conversations with other teams, whether it's to acquire a veteran quarterback or just get a decent feel for what the trade market for the draft is going to be like so that they could prepare accordingly. Look, Bill Belichick is always two steps ahead of the competition. Don't you think he was three steps ahead of Tom Brady? I would agree with you. Plus, remember, this is the same guy, Paul, that when he wins the Super Bowl, the first statement in his press conference is not, hey, we're happy to win the Super Bowl. We're three weeks behind everybody else. So now he actually had a little time to get ahead of everybody else because of the fact that the Patriots didn't go to the Super Bowl. I'm going to make a prediction for you right now, Lance. I don't know that Tom Brady's ever going to get to another Super Bowl, but I'll tell you this right now. Bill Belichick will get to one before Tom Brady does. Well, that's going to be a debate across sports talk shows for the next few weeks, especially since they don't have much to talk to. So, Paul, I think you now gave a lot of food for thought for everybody listening. Before we wrap up, here's one other scenario I want to throw out as we're really digging deep into the speculation. If the Indianapolis Colts bring in Phillip Rivers, which I think would be a really good move because of Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni being there, who coached him with the Chargers. The offensive line is in great shape with Nelson Costanzo and Braden Smith. Jacoby Brissett perhaps becomes expendable because they have wiggle room to get out of that contract. He was in New England. 
could perhaps the Patriots entertain the idea of making a reunion with him considering Josh McDaniels is still the offensive coordinator? I suppose that's possible, although I think they probably would want a guy who's got more NFL snaps under his belt than Brissett because they already have a younger guy in Stidham who they just drafted last year, and I think they have high hopes for him. You know, I I was a big Stidham fan last year, uh, and so I quite frankly do hope that he becomes the future for the Patriots, if not this season, certainly next season. We should tell people, by the way, that we know Drew Brees is not going to New England because he's staying in New Orleans. Correct, yes. I think that was a safe bet, and that did also come to fruition based on the multiple reports that we're seeing across the NFL landscape. As you could see and as you could hear, there is a great deal of news by the minute, by the second, by the day, and we will be here to cover it all on Big Blue Kickoff Live each and every weekday throughout the course of the offseason, even during these trying times. So we will be with you monitoring all the latest news. Paul, it was certainly fun to have our first go-around under this new setup And I look forward to interacting with you from afar with social distancing in place moving forward on the program. But uh, definitely enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. We will abide by the rules. And thank you to the NFL for giving us plenty to chew on. Absolutely. So that is going to wrap up Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. And we'll be back up and running on Wednesday with the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com and the mobile app. Have a good one.